Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. This is the podcast where we unearth the cutting edge science on cannabis that's typically only found in academic journals and bring it out into the light. My name is Emily Feda and I will be your guide as we converse with neuroscientists, psychologists, biologists, and physicians to learn more about cannabis as a plant and how it can be used as medicine. We are back for season two and we still have so much to learn about cannabis, so expect plenty of new content on that. But we're also going to be having a wider range of conversations this season and talking about some of the new research on plant-based medicines and psychedelics like psilocybin, ketamine, and ayahuasca. We also have some great interviews with anthropologists, and we're going to be exploring some of the societal and cultural elements surrounding the production and the use of cannabis and other alternative types of medicine. So Cannabis Science Today just joined Instagram. Give us a follow at cannabis underscore science underscore today. And that is going to be where we announce all of our new episodes and also a place where we can facilitate conversation um, about some of the different topics that come up on these podcast episodes. Today we are featuring Dr. Nick Jacomes, who is a neuroscientist and the Director of Science and Innovation at Leafly, which is one of the largest online platforms for reviews and ratings of cannabis strains, products, and dispensaries. We talk about what we can learn from using all this crowdsourced data from patients and consumers on different cannabis strains, and Dr. Jacomes reveals some really fascinating patterns and insights that he has gained from analyzing these data sets. Um, We talk about some of the three major chemical types among high THC strains that he's observed within these data sets, and we talk about certain correlations between terpenes and cannabinoids, and this is a really good episode if you want to learn how to better navigate the cannabis shopping experience and go beyond, you know, the traditional phenotypes of indica, sativa, and hybrid so you can find and be able to identify certain chemical compounds in cannabis that could work really well for you and your medical needs. You can follow Nick on Twitter at trichomes, that's T-R-I-K-O-M-E-S. You have a PhD in neuroscience, and you are working as a director of science and innovation at Leafly. So, so tell me more about your background and what led you to your current work. Yeah, so I've always been interested in in psychoactive drugs and how they affect the mind and the brain, as well as how the brain is doing what it does and how how that is impacted by those drugs. So, you know, if I fast forward through my academic career, I I wanted to leave academia at some point, but I still had this longstanding interest in cannabis in particular and in how drugs are affecting the brain. So I had this opportunity that uh, presented itself at the end of my PhD. And I went from being uh, a neuroscientist in the research world to a scientist in the cannabis industry. And so I started working at Leafly and Leafly was this very interesting technology company that had a really interesting uh, orientation towards cannabis consumers and cannabis data. So Leafly had, you know, spent the better part of a decade amassing crowdsourced information from consumers about how cannabis was affecting them. You know, what did it smell like? What did it taste like? What did it feel like when they consumed it? And I was always interested in that. And I was always interested specifically in connecting that, what 
the experience was to the actual chemistry of these products in this plant, because the chemistry is actually very fascinating. It's actually very complex in many ways. So cannabis plants, as you know, don't just make THC, they make a variety of cannabinoids and terpene compounds, different types of molecules that are doing different things for the plant. And so the plant is really you could almost think of it like a, like a pharmaceutical factory or a drug cocktail that's getting produced. And that's causing um, some very interesting things to happen to the human mind, uh, both from a recreational and a, and a medical perspective. So I was really interested in going to Leafly, having access to the kind of data and the kind of large consumer audience that Leafly had, you know, connected to millions of consumers, plugging in information to their database and connecting that to objective information, the actual chemi chemistry of this plant. And so I've spent a number of years now um, working at Leafly, uh, working with cannabis testing facilities across North America and working with them to take that chemistry data to understand the chemistry, the complex chemistry of cannabis plants in different chains and start to try and understand how that relates to the effects that people experiencing are are manifesting themselves and trying to relate those two things. So how is the objective data, the chemistry relating to the subjective effects that people are actually reporting? And that's, that's generally speaking what my interest is at Leafly and, and what I'm doing, sort of working with those types of data sets. And we do different things such as, you know, make recommendation algorithms for our consumers. But we've also done a lot of interesting research, um, some of which we've published on that has to do with a variety of other topics. And so, you know, I'm happy to talk about any of those things. Mm -hmm. And when I think of Leafly, for, for listeners who, who aren't necessarily familiar with the site, there are a lot of, um, so basically any cannabis consumer could sign on to Leafly and offer a review of a particular consumer product, correct? Correct. You can think of Leafly as... Leafly is really a cannabis information resource. It's the world's largest cannabis information resource for consumers. And we like to think about it in sort of three different segments. You can come to Leafly just to learn. So you can come uh, read our strain database. We've got you know, thousands of strains in the database and it has information um, on what the strain is, where you can find it, what cannabinoids and terpenes you're likely to encounter in that in products with that strain name, um, information about where the strain came from and how it grows, user reviews, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you can also read, you know, articles and and other sources of information about cannabis, whether it's you know new developments in cannabis legalization in the United States or elsewhere in the world, whether it's about you know what cannabis is and where it comes from, how to grow cannabis yourself how to consume it, et cetera, et cetera. You can come to learn about virtually anything you want as a cannabis consumer. The second segment is shop. So you can also actually shop for cannabis online legally at Leafly. So if you're in a, a jurisdiction where cannabis is legally available, you can um, look at different products. You can see which products are connected to each strain. You can find them at dispensaries nearby. And the final segment that we think about for what we offer to consumers is, is actually purchasing cannabis. And so what we can do is once you've learned about cannabis, once you've shopped around and found the strain or the product that you think you might want to go buy, you can actually pre-order it for a pickup or delivery at a dispensary. And um, so you can kind of go through that full, that full journey as a consumer where you're learning about it, you're understanding it, you're figuring out what you might want, then you can sort of shop around, find a product that works for you, and ultimately go and in, go into the store and pick it up, or actually have it delivered to you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, in terms of the actual data that you are collecting from consumers who are writing these reviews, 
Um, how reliable would you say consumers are um, when it comes to reporting data about certain strains? And, and I'm also, because I know you are also working with laboratories to get that, um, you know, that data directly from the testing facilities regarding cannabinoid compound or, uh, compounds or terpenoid compounds. Um, and, and how often do you kind of see patterns emerge from what consumers report and what the laboratories are reporting? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's a very complex issue in many ways. Um, so on the question of reliability, you know, one of the driving factors for me for starting to work with the laboratories and bring in this objective lab source data was that it was a great complement to the subjective crowdsource data that comes from the consumers. The crowdsource data coming from consumers is really great in the sense that you can get a lot of it relatively quickly. So there's so many people using Leafly and they've been using it over so many years that we've got, you know, millions and millions of user reviews. So a lot of data coming directly from the consumers themselves about how they were experiencing the product from, from their perspective. So that's the upside. You can get a lot of data in a crowdsourced way. The downside is um, that data is subjective and it is messy in different ways. So for example, you know, if I'm a consumer and I'm writing a review for the Blue Dream I just smoked, um, I don't know if that Blue Dream was really Blue Dream. So consumer A might um, go buy an eighth of Blue Dream flower they might go home and say that, you know, it smelled like berries or it smelled herbal or something like that. And then write a review about their experience. The second consumer from a completely different part of the country, let's say, might buy a Blue Dream product. And it might not actually even be Blue Dream just because of how these things are regulated or really the, the lack of regulation. Right. Um, they might be smoking a completely different strain with a completely different chemical profile, but it was called Blue Dream. And then they go to review it. And now I'm looking at two Blue Dream reviews, but they're actually reviews of two different products. Or similarly, you know, one person might vape the product at one temperature, the next person might vape it at another temperature, and that's actually going to affect the, the product that they're really consuming. It's going to be two different products effectively if you vape it at two different temperatures. You know, the third reviewer might have a Blue Dream, uh, you know, extract, a concentrate, and it's a, it's a concentrated oil that comes from Blue Dream flower, but again, the chemistry there will be different, um, and they're smoking it. Um, a different way. So the consumption method can vary from person to person reviewing. Um, the identity of the actual product and the underlying chemistry is going to be different, even though they share the same name. And so in that sense, the crowdsource data is quite messy. And that's why we wanted to complement it with this objective lab source data. And the ultimate goal over time is to move to a place where people aren't simply writing reviews about something with a, a generic name like Blue Dream. But to actually get to a place where we have identified the specific chemistry of a specific product and the user can review um, a, pro a verified product, right? So that they're going to be a verified purchaser of that product. We know its identity. We know its chemistry. And then we can start tying together that crowdsource data to the lab source data in a much more uh, precise fashion. And that is where a lot of a lot of new insights will come from. That being said, we've got so much data to work with that there's already um, more than enough interesting things that we see in it. But over time, we just wanna get more and more precise um, in terms of how we're linking uh, data about specific products to specific strain names. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely want to hear about some of the most interesting insights that you have learned from um, this crowdsource data. But but first, I would like to know kind of maybe about um, the the test the laboratory the the results that you're getting from the laboratory tests. And I know you wrote a paper in 2018 about how the cannabinoid content um, could vary 
even when you were controlling for plausible variables. So do you still feel that's true or are you still seeing that there's yes. some issues with laboratory testing and that's kind of holding us back in terms of yes. really getting this the best suit? Because really the whole goal of this data, it sounds like is to get the best suited medicine into patients' hands. Um, yeah, so could you talk about that? Yeah, I think so. There's a lot to talk about here, but what we've built at Leafly is something called the, the Leafly Certified Labs Program. And what we do there is we actually have to um, analyze the data from labs before we decide to partner with them. So we will not just blindly partner with labs because they're willing to partner with us and share data with us. Um, a lot of companies work that way where it's like data is, you know, data is such a valuable commodity that people are just willing to take as much data from anyone that they possibly can. But, you know, when it comes to something like this, it's, you know, this is a very important health issue at the end of the day. Um, we're talking about a product that contains, you know, medicinally relevant compounds, a product that contains um, psychoactive compounds um, that can have intoxicating effects. And so we want to make sure that when we're sourcing data from labs, that that laboratory data is accurate and reliable. And therefore that when we have it, um, the insights we're going to get from it are actually accurate. And, you know, you mentioned the paper that we published in 2018 and, you know, the summary of what's going on there is not all of the data that's coming out of cannabis lab testing facilities is accurate and reliable. And the reason for that um, is pretty well understood in the industry. This might not be known to listeners outside the industry, but what I'm about to say is, is very well known in the industry. And the story goes like this. Um, if I go and take measurements from two different labs, and it could be the exact same product. So let's say you take a butt off a plant, you pull another butt off the same plant, or maybe you just, you, you could even break the same butt in half. So it's the same product. Um, and you should, you should get in theory, the same measurement from two different labs, right? If it's 20% THC, you should get 20% from one lab, 20% from another lab. Maybe, you know, maybe it varies by a couple of percentage points due to error, but you should get about the same product um, numbers from both labs. What's actually happening is you tend to get two different numbers from many labs. Oftentimes, one lab will give a number that's higher than the other one by several percentage points. So why is that? Um, and is it, is it a mistake or a fluke? Or is it, um, is it something about the lab that's causing that to happen? And, and the, the punchline is that it's something about the lab that's causing that to happen. It's not just a fluke. And there's a really strong economic driver for that. And unfortunately, it starts with the consumer. So consumers today, by and large, it's starting to change, but by and large, consumers are pretty fixated on two numbers for cannabis products. The first is the price, right? Can I afford, can I afford it? Is within my price range. That one's pretty obvious, right? The second one is the THC level. So 80, 80 to 90% of the products that you're going to see on the legal market are THC dominant. So they do not contain significant levels of CBD or other compounds. And most products aren't tested for terpenes and consumers really haven't figured out um, what's relevant about terpenes yet. So they fixate on one number, THC levels, and people want high THC levels most of the time. So it's very well known. It's been documented in the literature. It's very well known in the industry. You can see it happen in real time if you, if you go into a dispensary and watch what people are doing and how they're shopping. They're trying to get as much THC as they can for their dollar. So what that means is the retailers are in a switch situation where if you're talking about cannabis flower, if you're at 
20% THC versus 15% THC, that 20% flower will sell faster and you can sell it for more. If it's 25, it'll sell faster. You can sell it for more. If it's 30, you can sell it faster. You can sell it for more. Um, so retailers then tell the producers, the people making the cannabis who are trying to sell their product to the retailer, you know, bring me stuff with high THC levels. Bring me stuff that says 20, 25, 30. Don't bring me anything below 20. 20% is often the magic number. Uh, people really want things to be above 20%. And so what the producers do is, you know, they spent all this time, all this energy, all this money, you know, growing this beautiful plant that takes a lot of work and, and it truly is a science and an art form. And, you know, it's in many ways, uh, it's unfortunate because, you know, THC is not the only thing that matters. You could have a beautiful, healthy plant making beautiful, highly resinous buds that have a really nice cannabinoid and terpene profile and it's 18% THC. And that producer will have a really hard time selling that but at a good price to a store because of what I just mentioned. So what happens then? Well, the producers are now taking their plants and they're actually shopping around from lab to lab. And, you know, this, I guess it's pretty well known in the industry. People talk about it. We know this is happening. Um, you know, they'll, they'll send a sample to one lab, to a second lab, to a third lab. And, you know, maybe that bud is actually 18%. And one lab will test it accurately, 18%, 17%, 19%, whatever it is. But another lab will come back with 23 24%. Well, that producer is now going to take all their product to that lab, giving them the higher number. So there's an economic incentive for the lab to give the producer a higher number. And that's because there's an economic incentive for the producer to have cannabis with the highest THC content possible. And that's because consumers are shopping in this sort of myopic way, fixated on that one number inside the retail environment. And so there's this ripple effect that goes all the way back through the supply chain from the consumer to the retailer, to the producer, to the lab. And it's driving um, this sort of behavior. Um, and unfortunately, um, that's just where we're at. The regulations in the industry are not probably what they should be. Um, there's no one really keeping as close an eye on the labs as possible um, to make sure that, you know, everything, everything that's happening is, is legitimate. And um, that's unfortunately where we're at. And I think the only way we're going to fix it is really by educating consumers and getting them to understand that cannabis is a lot more than just THC. And actually, sometimes the best cannabis that gives you the best high doesn't have the highest number. You know, you can find really, this is actually a pro tip. So once you understand everything I just described, pro tip to anyone listening out there, you can find really, really high quality cannabis flower in a dispensary for a really good price. If you just stop looking for something that's, you know, 20, 25% plus THC, go into the bargain bin. You'll often see things that are 15, 16, 17, 18%. And they've got really nice, juicy, resinous buds that are going to have a great profile and a great high at a bargain price. And that's because the average consumer just doesn't realize yet that there's more to it than THC. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And have you been able to look at um, some of this testing data, let's say in terms of THC levels, and compare that to some of the consumer data that you've collected through Leafly? And um, do, do you, is there, I guess, is there any evidence there that consumers are able to decipher the difference between a 15% THC bud and then a 25% one? That's a good question. So I think the short answer is, I think you probably could discern some differences if you were to do it in a very controlled and careful fashion. And most people don't do that. So could you give someone um, a, a, a specific dose of something that was 15% THC with one terpene profile, a particular bouquet of terpenes, and then give someone else the same exact dose 
at a different time of another flower that had say 20 or 25% THC or maybe a similar THC level in a different terpene profile, could they tell the difference? I think, and, and I'm, I'm speculating based on the data I've seen, I think that you probably could detect differences there if you did the measurements in a very controlled fashion and you picked certain types of strains with certain types of profiles. And the reason I'm saying it that way is to do with a couple of different things. One, um, consumers will naturally uh, alter their dose based on the potency of the product. So if you gave someone a 15% THC sample and you gave someone a 25% THC sample, um, the person getting the lower THC percentage sample might naturally smoke a little bit more than the person getting a high dose. And they'll have comparable effects because you're smoking two different doses of something. So people will spontaneously titrate the dose in that fashion. And we know that that occurs. The second thing to keep in mind is there are distinct profiles out there. And what I mean by that is if you look at THC CBD levels, and if you look at the major terpenes that are present in most flower samples, there's really only a handful of uh, distinctly different profiles that you see out in the marketplace today. Um, but no one really knows which strain is which because the products aren't labeled based on the full profile. And so I'll describe that for you. And then what we'll get to is I think that there actually are um, probably about three major types of terpene profiles represented out there today in all of the high THC cannabis that's in the commercial marketplace in North America. And I think if you were to do controlled experiments, looking at the effects of well-defined doses given to people of those three different profiles, that you would see people um, with some ability to discern differences in the flavor and aroma, as well as the effects, but that hasn't been done yet. And so let me unpack what I'm talking about. If you look at all of the data that we've looked at from all the labs that we've partnered with across North America, what you find is that, you know, around 85 or so percent of the flower out there is going to be THC dominant, high THC, low CBD, low levels of other minor cannabinoids, except that certain strains, and it tends to be certain specific types of strains, tend to have a little bit of a minor cannabinoid called CBG. So there's some strains out there, only a minority, but there are some that have, you know, one or two or 3% CBG. Okay. So you've got a lot of strains with high THC levels. In fact, mo that's most strains out there. You know, some will have lower levels, some will have higher levels. A subset of those high THC strains will have a little bit of CBG, one to 3%, let's say. So let's hold on to that. That's the cannabinoids. If you look at the terpene, what you find is that there's a variety of terpenes out there. There are dozens of terpenes you can find in cannabis, but there's really actually um, a relatively small number of terpene profiles that are prominent and represented by commercial cannabis today. And if you do analysis on you know, the hundreds of thousands of batches of lab data that we've looked at at this point, we can use things, we can use techniques in data science such as clustering techniques that allow us to figure out how many you know, basic types of terpene profiles are out there. And, you know, one way that we look at the data comes up with the answer of three. There are strains with very high levels of myrcene and pinene, and they have other terpenes in them, but they tend to be characterized by having very high myrcene and pinene levels. And that'll be strains such as uh, Blue Dream, for example. Blue Dream is an example of a strain that tends to have high myrcene pinene. There are also strains that have particularly high levels of caryophylline, limonene, and humulene. Uh, a strain like Girl Scout cookies or Gorilla Glue will tend to have that profile. And remember, what I mean by that is that strain name is likely to have that profile. Um, but there's no, there's no rules or regulations around who can name strains what, 
So it can be a bit of a crapshoot out there. So you've got your high myrcene, high pinene, chemovars or strains like Blue Dream. You've got your high caryophylline limiting humulene strains or strain names like Girl Scout Cookies Say or Gorilla Glue number four. And then you've got one more group that's very interesting, and that's the high trypinolene uh, THC strains. So a certain subset of high THC strains will have high levels, usually quite high levels, of a terpene called terpinolene. And we don't know a lot about this terpene, but it tends to be in these strains at very high levels and in other strains at very low levels. And then if you remember what I told you about the cannabinoids, about CBG in particular, it's actually the high terpinolene strains that are most likely to be the ones that have, um, you know, one to 3% CBG levels. So if you start to look at all the data and you start to piece together the things I just said, a picture emerges where there's actually some distinct chemotypes out there, meaning chemical types of cannabis. Each one has a tend to have a distinct entourage or combination of both cannabinoids and terpenes. But there's no good way today, except by going on to Leafly, to actually start to understand and see as a consumer which strains are which. Yeah, that's really and interesting. So, I didn't realize that there was any correlation between CBG and certain terpenes. Yes, that's actually the only, um, that's the only clear correlation we see. Mm-hmm. And the high terpenoline strains are very interesting for that reason and for some other reasons. So if you go on to Leafly, what you'll actually see is you'll see that the high terpenoline strains are color-coded orange. And we picked orange for a particular reason. But uh, So every terpene on Leafly has a different color. So if you go onto the strain page, you'll see that each strain name is associated with a different combination of colors and shapes, which represent the cannabinoids and terpenes that are the most closely associated with that strain name. So if you were to go to the Super Lemon Haze strain page on Leafly, for example, this is a great example of a strain with this entourage of chemical compounds. What you'll see is that it's a high THC strain. So it's got um, pointy diamonds associated with it. It tends to have pretty high THC levels. It also has a little bit of CBG associated with it. So it tends to have one or two or 3% CBG. And you can see that right on the strain page. And it has that high terpene profile. So it's got an orange color on the Leafly strain page. And so Super Lemon Haze has that profile, but a lot of other strains from particular families also have that profile. So actually, um, there's an overrepresentation of Haze strains in that group. So Super Lemon Haze tends to have this high terpenoline profile with a little bit of CBG. Ghost Train Haze also tends to have this profile. Actually, Lemon, you know, you might naturally think that, you know, strains with lemon in the name would tend to be limiting dominant. But statistically, if you go look at and look at the data and do the analysis, you're, you're most likely to have a high terpenoline profile if lemon is in the name. So something like lemon haze or super lemon haze or golden lemon is a high terpenoline strain. And you can see that on Leafly. Um, golden, anything with golden in the name tends to have this profile, golden lemon, golden goat golden pineapple. Um, And anything with Jack in the name from the Jack Herrera lineage is often this high terpenoline profile that sometimes has um, reasonably high levels of CBG. So Jack Herrera, Black Jack, XJ13, J1, things like that. And I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, if I could just intervene for one for one moment, because I think CBG has been getting so much media attention lately for mm-hmm. different medicinal effects, and and I'm wondering, but but then I haven't heard about this correlation with terpenoline and CBG. So so is there some? I don't know. Does sometimes the new the new cannabinoids get all of the attention when it actually might be the terpenes that are associated with that cannabinoid are responsible for some of the medical effects? I think it's possible. We just don't know yet. Um, But what's really fascinating here is, I think you're right. It's, 
when you're talking about cannabis, you're really talking about combinations of different chemical um, compounds. And I believe that it's very likely that different combinations are going to have different medicinal effects. Now, many of these compounds have medical effects in isolation, but they're not necessarily going to have the same effects or have the most desirable effects if you use them in isolation. They might actually have the most desirable effects if you have them in combination. And we haven't really figured out what those combinations are or what they do exactly for the most part. But the fact that you see some of these correlations is very interesting. And I think uh, we, I think we have to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. And, and so they exist organically too. So yes. breeders aren't necessarily, they're not necessarily breeding for these terpene profiles. They might be breeding for the cannabinoids, but then they just come along with it. Yeah. I think what's happening is, is two things. Sometimes the breeders are, they're breeding for effect. They want the smoke they want the smoke to be good. They want the high to be good that they're getting from the product. And so they're selecting for that effect and they may be inadvertently selecting for a particular combination of say minor cannabinoids and terpenes when they do that. And sometimes I think they're also selecting for the aroma explicitly, right? You want some, some people just love bud that smells a little skunkier or a little fruitier. And when you do that, you're naturally going to select for the terpenes because they're responsible for that. But also if you think about it from the plant's perspective, you know, the plant is producing particular combinations of these things on purpose, so to speak. And that's because these compounds, both the cannabinoids and the terpenes, they're really, um, they're really the plant's chemical protection. They provide physical protection against the physical elements like sunlight and UV light that can damage, you know, tissues. And they're providing chemical protection against things that want to eat the plant. So a lot of times the plant's producing these combinations or these entourages of compounds in order to protect protect itself from uh, particular types of, say, insects that might want to eat the plant or particular molds that will will infect the plant. And, you know, if you go talk to a breeder or, or a grower, they'll tell you, you know, some plants are really good at fighting against a certain species of mites and some plants are really bad at it. Some plants are really good at protecting themselves against a certain type of mold and some plants are really bad at it. And the reason they're good or bad at fighting a particular bug is going to be that combination of chemicals they're producing. Mm, wow. That's so interesting. So in terms of this crowdsource data, um, that you're able to to get from consumers and from patients. Have you noticed, are, are any medical conditions talked about quite frequently or um, any certain products that attract the most attention and allow you to draw the most patterns when, you, when you're looking at these huge data sets? Um, sort of, yes. So, um, I mean, the first thing that you see when you look at the crowdsource data is there's actually so much of it and cannabis is so versatile that you know, people use it for almost everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, a lot of the effects, a lot of, you know, the most common things that people are using cannabis for out there are, um, I would just say stress relief generally. Mm -hmm. And and that's sort of a catch-all term because stress can manifest itself in many different ways. Um, But stress relief is a big one. Sleep is a big one. And, you know, pain and inflammation are big ones. So I think there's different people using cannabis for different reasons. And those are often the main buckets. Um, Sometimes people are using it to treat things like anxiety, depression as well. And the thing that you have to keep in mind with this stuff is when you're thinking about something like, you know, I would think about something like a physical problem with the body. Like, you know, maybe you have arthritis, let's say, and your joints physically hurt. A lot of the cannabinoids there have anti-inflammatory effects. So something like THC or something like CBD or potentially the two of them in combination are uh, likely to provide some uh, 
some benefit to someone with an inflammatory based problem in their body, like arthritis say. Um, and they might benefit from THC, they might benefit from CBD, they might benefit, benefit from both. But a lot of these um, ailments can actually arise and manifest in different ways in different people. So if you have two different people with arthritic joints, they have the same symptoms, joint pain and joint stiffness and inflammation, but the mechanisms at play that are causing that problem for each person might be different. So one person might benefit the most from a high THC product, whereas another person might benefit most from a high CBD product, even though they have the same types of symptoms. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, some people might benefit from the combination of both. In fact, for something like an inflammatory-based problem, you know, I typically recommend people products that contain uh, multiple cannabinoids, just because that gives you multiple compounds that are likely to have anti-inflammatory effects or that may have anti-inflammatory effects, each one acting through different mechanisms to give you the highest chance um, that something is going to work. Um, so that's something that we see often, right? People with some sort of pain or inflammation, um, cannabinoid-based products often work well for those people. Fine-tuning which product is the best typically takes a little bit of trial and error, just because everyone's you know, everyone's problems are going to manifest in a different way, as I mentioned. Right. And so what you're saying, too, is that it's not that useful to look at a massive data set and be like, okay, well, a thousand people said that they had arthritis and they use these different products, but, but just because those are the symptoms, but to look more at the underlying causes of those symptoms. Yes, I think... Which makes it more complicated, I think, to do this kind of analysis and give, you know, quality product recommendations. Yes, I think, you know, with cannabis, because it is a complex pr product, it's not just one drug, it's not just THC, it's actually, you know, probably dozens of compounds that may matter. That really means that it's probably best to think about cannabis from the context of personalized or precision medicine, right? And precision, precision medicine is just the concept that if two people have the same disease or the same problem, they might require two different medications or two different combinations of medications or two different doses of the same medication to treat the same symptoms. So even though the symptoms are the same, the underlying cause is different. And that might be because, um, you know, we each have a unique genome and maybe one person has, you know, one version of a gene, another person has another version of a gene and they're responding to the drug in different ways. They're metabolizing it in different ways. And actually we know that's true with cannabis. Um, so if you just take something like THC, for example, we know that there are fast metabolizers, slow metabolizers, and normal metabolizers of THC. So someone is just uh, inherently more likely to very quickly metabolize THC and therefore tolerate a higher dose. Someone might be particularly sensitive to THC because they are producing an enzyme or producing less of an enzyme that's breaking down the THC. And so they feel the effects of the THC uh, longer. And so there's those kinds of differences between people. There's also obviously lifestyle differences in terms of the amount of diet and exercise people have. And all of that can affect your metabolism and how you're metabolizing these things. And so again, you can have two different people with the same ailments that actually require two different drugs, or two different combinations of drugs or cannabinoids or whatever to treat it. And likewise, you can have two different, you could have two different strains, say, two different cocktails of cannabinoids and terpenes, and they might actually be um, good for two different people with arthritis, right? So even though they both have arthritis, one responds best to this thing, one responds best to this thing. Someone might want, you know, something that has lower levels of THC and higher levels of CBG or CBD. Someone might respond best to something that is purely THC, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so I try to think about cannabis from that perspective. Um, if you want, you know, I think we're going to move to an era where we've, we're using big data sets about people's genomes and about their lifestyle.
style. We're using big data sets about the subjective effects they're reporting and recording in apps like Leafly. And we're using big data sets about the actual chemical formulations of these products. And that's going to take us from where we're at today, which is, you know, today we have the ability to make relatively crude recommendations to people because all of the data is, is sort of messy, right? It's aggregated. People aren't smoking the same product, even though it has the same name. We don't always know what the chemistry of the individual products are. We're going to move from that to an era where we have very uh, precise and personalized recommendations we can give to people based on knowing the, the, the results of understanding the chemistry of the products in aggregate, understanding the results people are telling us in terms of the effects in aggregate, but also tying specific chemistries from specific products to individual people that we know have a particular, say, genetic mutation in the gene that metabolizes THC or something, and getting just getting really precise about that. And there's lots of there's lots of exciting stuff happening there. So you can look at a company like Leafly, and we're amassing this huge data set that's going to set us up to do that. There's also companies out there um, that are doing genetic testing. So Endocana Health is an interesting company, and you know you can you can order their product online. And it's sort of like 23andMe or something like that. You spit in a tube, you send it back to them. They actually sequence parts of your genome that have to do with drug metabolism and the endocannabinoid system. And they can tell you things like, you know, you're going to be a, a fast THC metabolizer or a slow THC metabolizer. And then actually start to give you personalized recommendations about the particular cannabinoids and terpenes that you might want to achieve a certain effect. And so over time, as the years go on, I think that's what you're going to see. You're going to see these large data sets getting more and more precise and the recommendations getting more and more personalized. So how far out do you think we are from that really personalized recommendation engine for a cannabis product? It's a good question. And it really depends on, it really depends on uh, the level of, of focus and commitment different companies have to this. So no one, no one today has all the pieces that you need to do that for real. So a company like Leafly has millions of users that can give, you know, millions and millions of data points in the form of user reviews and other things mm -hmm. um, by logging on to Leafly. That's one big piece. You need a lot of users willing to give you a lot of inputs. The second piece is you need that chemistry data. You need to understand the, chem the exact chemical profile of many products, as many as possible. So you can, so then you can start to tie the specific product chemistries to the specific verified user reviews of people who bought those products with known chemical compositions. And the third piece is really the, um, the personal piece or the genomic piece to understand the individual genomic and biological differences between individual people that are going to allow them or make them um, react to different chemical compositions in different ways. And the first person, I think the first group that can tie all of those things together is gonna have a really interesting and really valuable data set that allows you to do at least two different things. One is provide the consumer themselves with direct and highly personalized recommendations. And that's obviously powerful, right? That's what every consumer wants. Whether they're a medical patient or a recreational consumer, everyone would love uh, a recommendation that's real. Like it's actually going to tell me with accuracy that you know my medical ailment, whatever it is, arthritis, insomnia, whatever it may be, is actually gonna be most likely to respond to this particular product with this particular formulation. Mm -hmm. The second type of thing that you'd be able to do is you would be able to use that data, that massive data set to do really, really exciting research in the biopharmaceutical world, right? So as people are trying to develop new medications to, to, 
to do clinical trials with. Um, I think it's going to be, it's very difficult to figure out which combinations of compounds to use because this plant is so complicated and there's so little good data out there. If you can create a database that has millions of user inputs, that has information about he, how each individual reacts to drugs differently based on their own personal biological differences and has a robust analysis and database of all of the complex uh, chemical profiles represented in those products, you've now got a really good um, almost research platform that you can use to develop um, medicines that are going to be used to do clinical trials and develop brand new formulations for new new ailments and and all sorts of stuff that you could think of. So and I think it's going to take time. I think yeah, what do you think is the role? Because, you know, there are a lot of preclinical studies or, or, and mm -hmm. some clinical studies on cannabis happening all over the world, mostly outside of the U.S. Um, but what do you think is the role of these other types of, um, you know, clinical or laboratory studies? What, how could you potentially combine that in with you know, these other yeah. crowdsource data that you're talking yep. about? How will they all fit together? Or, or is there, yeah, what yeah. is the of that? Well, I think... I think right now, I think about it the following way. There's a lot of interest both in the cannabis industry, in the research world, in the basic research world and the clinical research world to understand for real. And when I say for real, I mean by doing very well controlled studies that are properly blinded and properly controlled. But there's a lot of interest to do studies that allow us to understand the specific medical conditions that are treated best treated by different kinds of cannabis products. And uh, even though there's studies happening today, um, there's, there's, there's studies happening today, but they're not happening as efficiently as they could be happening. And that's because nobody is using um, the knowledge we have about chemical profiles that are out there represented in actual cannabis products that people are using and saying are helping their, their symptoms and using those profiles to actually inform their studies. So what do I mean by that? So you can go out and look at a lot of the clinical trials that have happened already in the U.S. and elsewhere or clinical trials that are ongoing, and they might be using a product that is pure THC, or they might be using a strain that was grown um, at the University of Mississippi that has, you know, 9% THC and very low levels of terpenes, and they don't even measure the terpenes that are in there, and it doesn't actually represent chemically the stuff that people are consuming out in the legal market. Um, you can go look at studies that are using maybe THC and CBD, or maybe studies that are starting to look at maybe one terpene and THC or something like that. But no one has gone out and done studies with the major uh, chemical families that are represented in cannabis flower that people are actually smoking. So if you think back to what I said earlier about those different entourages that we found when we analyzed all of our lab data, well, you know, you've got high THC strains with high levels of myrcene and pinene in a particular ratios of all the other terpenes and cannabinoids. You've got a different class of flower that has terpenaline levels and some CBG together with THC, right? So you've got distinct entourages out there in the products that people are actually consuming. The people consuming those products are the ones saying that, that cannabis has uh, provided them benefit in terms of their medical problems, but no one's actually doing almost any clinical research using those profiles that are represented in the commercial marketplace. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you make a really good point. Um, and I've talked about this on other podcasts, but of course, you know, there's the, the NIDA element that people are using um, 
low quality cannabis from the University of Mississippi to do tests. But then beyond that, even when some researchers get past that, they are actually like at CU Boulder, for instance, they're doing a lot of cool studies, but they're not actually allowed to tell the patients what to purchase or provide the cannabis for the study. So a lot of times what happens is the people who are in the study um, go to the dispensary and they just purchase what they want to purchase, which is is kind of, I mean, it's just not as effective or as efficient if there was actually like, oh, well, we're doing this study on does cannabis reduce alcohol dependency? And we know from this crowdsource data that this strain or this entourage effect or this molecule is more effective in treating that. So let's do the the research focused on that. And I I think you're totally right. That's that's not what's really happening in these studies. It's either it's self-selected cannabis by by the by the the user, the participant, which which is limited because it's like okay then maybe you're maybe sh- sure maybe the results are positive but but also what if mm-hmm. the results are negative and they could have it could have been more effective or it could have been more successful if they had been using a yep. strain or, or a compound that was more effective at treating that particular condition absolutely so so we need to be using this data to inform those decisions whether it's you know research going on for you know, clinical purposes or in academia or for product development research that a lot of, you know, the big companies are interested in doing. There's a lot of companies out there interested in making novel formulations and there's all, and I don't think they're going about it in the most effective way possible. So for example, if I was, if I was running the R and D division at a cannabis production company, let's say, or I was, you know, supposed to be doing, uh, supposed to be running some sort of clinical trial to figure out the best profiles for some common ailment that people use cannabis for, you know, inflammatory based condition or something. What I would do is I would get a, a bunch of people and I would give them a precise dose of cannabis in a blinded fashion. And I would be giving p- different people, different types of cannabis products. And I would select the cannabis products in the formulations so that they were uh, representative of the actual distinct types of profiles that we see out in the marketplace in the lab data that I described earlier. So for example, I would have one formulation that mimics the high THC with CBG profile that also has hydropinylene. I would have one profile that is THC dominant and has high myrcene pinene and low levels of some other terpenes, et cetera, et cetera. I would pick two or three or four profiles that are maximally different, but representative of cannabis flower that's actually being consumed out in the real world. And I would be giving people, uh, I would be doing blinded studies where people are given well-defined doses of those formulations and seeing if we can detect differences there. I think in general, that's not the strategy people are taking. They're sort of doing things more haphazardly. Um, They're not properly blinding the study. They're allowing people to go buy their own and smoke as much as they want. And you just don't have the level of control or the level of uh, chemical diversity that I think you need to actually uncover differences that... I think are probably there. I think I think there is probably something to the entourage effect. I think there probably are a few distinct types of cannabis chemistries out there that probably are better on average for different ailments. But no one no one has quite done the right set of studies to really nail that down yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting and hopefully something that we'll see evolve over the next over the coming years. Um, so you mentioned that you you are through some of this crowdsource data, you are able to have a, a crude product recommendation engine at this point. So, yes. in terms of what are some of the pro- what are some of the correlations or the patterns or, or product recommendations for certain conditions that you you feel most strongly about or, or you feel are um, most supported by the Leafly data? Yeah. So I think there's there's a few different ways that we think about recommendations at Leafly. So I'll just sort of walk you through each one. 
Um, you know, one of them is just using sort of basic uh, standard e-commerce techniques. Um, and those are powerful because they do work. So uh, a great recommendation algorithm is simply people who bought this product also liked this product. And mm -hmm. so you'll see that on Leafly, so right? Like if classic you want, Amazon, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So if you go on Leafly and you purchase a product through Leafly Pickup and you like it, if you tell Leafly that you like it, and then you tell it you don't like another product, our algorithms will be able to tell you, well, because you like this one, you didn't like this one, we think you're going to like these ones based on how other people... But what if, I'm a, yeah, what if I'm a person who's never tried cannabis before and I'm ah, brand new to the system? That is, uh, that's a great question. So we actually just came out with a new feature called the Virtual Bud Tender, um, which is kind of cool. And you can use it as a first-time consumer. So what you do is... Um, you, you give us a few pieces of information. And the first one is how high do you want to get? Do you want to get really high or do you not want to get really high? Or do you want to be somewhere in the middle? And when you tell us that, it allows us to narrow down which products we recommend you based on their THC CBD ratio, right? Because we know THC is intoxicating. It's the one that gets you high. We know that CBD is not intoxicating and actually products um, that are high in CBD and low in THC um, won't get you high. And a balance of the two can actually give you a distinct high. So we take that as an input. That allows us to figure out what THC CBD ratio might be the best. And then we also take how calm or energized you want to feel. Do you want it to wake you up or do you want, want you to put it, put you down more? Um, and that allows us to plug into our crowdsource data and say, okay, based on everything that people told us, all the people told us through their user reviews, um, what are the more calming, energizing strains? And then people can pick some other effects they want. And we're, what we're really doing is we're starting to combine the objective lab source data about THC CBD levels together with the crowdsource data about the effects people have reported. And that gives people a first recommendation. And so once you have your first recommendation as a brand new user, you can go try that product. And if you like it, great. Now we can tell you products that are similar to it and we can give you really good recommendations that way. If you didn't like it, that's also something that Leafly can help you with because Leafly can now say, okay, let's pick a different product with a different type of chemistry because that one didn't work for them. And, and let me just interject so I, I make sure I'm understanding this correctly. Most of this, um, when, you're, when you're gathering this crowdsource data, most of the time it's because, okay, so I purchased Blue Dream through Leafly's site at a particular dispensary. But so, so you can trace what I purchased, the strain that I purchased, directly yep. back to that dispensary where I purchased that, and you can verify the laboratory results to confirm, indeed, X level of THC, X percent CBD, whatever else. So, so they're not just, these aren't just generic reviews. You're really able to trace them and track them back. Well, it's again, so the crowdsource data is mostly aggregated at this point. So when people are reviewing a product, um, historically they've been reviewing um, a name attached to that product. So, so take Blue Dream, for example, if you go to the Blue Dream stream page, you'll see that there are thousands upon thousands of reviews. And those aren't, are not all from products that are verified to be Blue Dream and they have a known composition. It's just products that were called Blue Dream. So all we know, all we know for sure it, is that it. on okay. average, on average, Blue Dream has a particular type of effect. And that's why, you know, what I mentioned earlier was we're moving so slowly but surely from a place where we're working only with aggregated crowdsource data to a place where we're also working with very precise data where we know the actual formulation of individual products that are verified. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take time to get there, um, but it's still the best, the best game in town is, is okay. the Leafly database. Yeah, yeah. So go on, go on. I, th I just wanted to kind of confirm or... 
Yeah, so we can, com we can combine those two types of uh, data sets, crowdsource and lab source. That's aggregated data. And we can give people a first recommendation. And then that, that gets people started. So if they like what they got, what they, what they smoked, they can come to Leafly and say, okay, I like that one. And that'll help us refine our algorithms even further. Now we know that because you like that product, you'll probably like these other products. And likewise, if they didn't like that product, we know to recommend them a different kind of product. So for example, if we recommend you a strain that has super high THC levels and maybe high myrcene pinene uh, terpene profile, we know that if they didn't like that product, we should not recommend them something that's likely to have that profile. We should recommend them something that has a distinct profile. You know, maybe it's one of those high terpeniline strains, or maybe it's a balanced strain with uh, both THC and CBD in it or something like that. And so that's how we're starting to combine those two things, feedback from the consumer and knowledge about the underlying chemistry associated with different products to help refine those recommendations over time. If we haven't talked about any of some of like the most interesting findings or the most, um, the best insights that you've gained through some of this research, I'd love to kind of give you the floor now to, to share some of those. You know, one of the most interesting things to me that's similar to some of the things we were talking about before was, you know, even though there's thousands of strain names out there, there's thousands of strains in the Leafly database, even though there's thousands of different brands and all these different products, one of the most interesting interesting things in the data that I found was there's actually only a handful of basic types of cannabis when you think about it through the lens of chemistry. And the first question we asked was, when I found that, I was like, okay, does it correspond to the categories that are already out there in the industry? So is it indica sativa hybrid? Do indicas have a different chemical profile on average from sativas and hybrids? And the answer is mostly no. So that was one of the first big learnings for me is the way that bud tenders and other people in the industry are categorizing and recommending products based on their physical traits, indica, hybrid, and sativa, is actually not a good way to recommend products to consumers because it does not mean or does not correspond to the differences in chemistry that are actually out there. Mm -hmm. So another way of saying that is if I, if I pick up a random strain that's an indica and pick up a random strain that's a sativa, knowing that does not really tell me anything reliable about the chemistry and whether it's different between those two products. So that was the first thing. Um, indicas and sativas are not that different on average when you look across all of the data. And therefore, knowing indica sativa is not going to be a very reliable way to find something that works for you consistently and reliably. That being said, as we mentioned earlier, there are differences between strains chemically that are out there. And there's not a thousand different types of strains out there, and there's not just one, there's a handful. So there's actually a workable number of different chemical types, different entourages that you can find. And once you learn that, and once you understand that, it becomes a lot easier to navigate the space of strains out there, and it becomes less overwhelming. So as I mentioned, the three big ones for high THC strains are the ones that have high mercy and high pinene levels. So things like Blue Dream, things like Northern Lights, things like... Um, OG Kush, say. And then there's things that have um, high THC levels, but they have a different terpene profile, high caryophylline, high limonene. And those are like your cookie strains or your glue strains, like Gorilla Glue. So they're a distinct chemical type from the high myrcene, high pinene type. So they're probably going to have different effects. They're going to taste different. They're going to smell different. And then the third type, which is to me the most interesting, is the high THC uh, strains that have some CBG and that have high levels of terpenaline. 
And so those are the three major types of terpene profiles that we see out in the high THC strains that are available today. Those profiles don't really correspond very well to the indica sativa hybrid categories that are used in dispensaries today. And so there's this knowledge gap out there that we have to fill. How do we communicate this new information to consumers so that it's going to allow them to more reliably find different strains that are suitable to them? And I would say that's probably my overall biggest learning so far. The categories the industry uses are not appropriate for understanding chemistry and understanding the effects of cannabis. However, there is a way to do that. And we're just bringing that to to consumers for the first time in the past year. And I think we've got a lot of work to to continue to educate them about how they can find strains that way. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point. And I'm wondering, what do you think are the limitations on crowdsourced data? And it sounds like it sounds like there are certain phenotypes or characteristics of a cannabis plant that um, a consumer can really pick up on quite easily or identify. And that could be the smell yep. or the taste. And a lot of times the smell is associated with the terpenes. So I think that is probably um, why, why these, these reviews and these crowdsourced data is, is really useful in, um, in identifying terpenes in different cannabis strains. But, but I'm wondering, what are the limitations in terms mm-hmm. of what a consumer can just identify from their experience? Yeah. The limitations of the consumer reviews and the crowdsourced data are that they can be quite imprecise and noisy. And a lot of that has to do with the subjective nature of the things we're talking about. So for example, think about aroma. If, uh, well, I'll share an anecdote to start with. Um, I remember one time being really excited to show some family members uh, some, some legal cannabis. And this was one of the first times that they had seen legal cannabis. Uh, and so I was super stoked to show them. And in particular, I had this one strain called banana OG. And I remember smelling it before I showed it to them. I was like, wow, it really does smell like bananas. It's called banana OG. And wow, it's, it, it actually is bananas. That's, that's super cool. I can't wait to make people smell this and, and watch them say that it smells like bananas. So I remember taking it to a small group of relatives. I did not show them the name of the strain. I just took the bud out of the bag and I was like, smell this, tell me what it smells like. And I was expecting them all to say like, wow, it smells just like bananas. Yeah. And one person said, well, it's, it smells like weed, I guess. And another person said, well, it smells kind of earthy. And another person says, well, it smells kind of herbal or fruity or whatever. And I was like, doesn't it taste like bananas? And they all smelled it. And they're like, I guess it sort of tastes like bananas. And some of them didn't even say that. And so that's actually not a surprising result because what you know, if you kind of go look at the literature from sensory perception and, and what's been studied there the way that people talk about aromas and smells is, is not, um, it's not easy to parse. Everyone uses different language to refer to the same things. So if you, if you give two people two odorants in a, in a jar, say one, you know, one molecule that's responsible for the odor, um, two different people might smell the exact same thing, but use two completely different words to describe it. You know, one person might say, well, it smells kind of earthy. And another person might say, well, it smells kind of floral or whatever, even though it's the exact same thing. And so when people are providing data in a crowdsource fashion, um, you can't really get around that, right? If one person says berry and another person says earthy, that doesn't mean it was two different things with two completely different terpene profiles. It could just be that two different people are using words in two different ways. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty subjective. That, that is the key limitation there. Right. And I guess I'm just wondering, even though that part is subjective, the, the, at least that those characteristics are, are identifiable from the consumers. Are, are there any compounds in cannabis that, you know, might affect us? Like there might be, you know, there might be some certain compound or tribune that makes me feel 
uh, a certain way, but but it, it would be very tricky for me to be like, oh, to, to identify it, to find words for that experience. And, and yes. just get lost. Yes, it would be very tricky to do that, especially without training by an expert. So typically when you do like a sensory perception study, you actually train the subjects ahead of time. You give them um, very distinct uh, chemicals that produce odors and you say, smell this, this is the thing that we're calling skunky, or this is the thing that we're calling pungent, or this is the thing that we're calling pine, et cetera, et cetera. And you give them a framework and a lexicon for talking about odors. And then you give them flowers or you give them cannabis or you give them whatever to smell so that they're already armed with a language they've been trained on to talk about it. In the absence of doing that, so obviously you can't do that with every cannabis consumer in the world. It's just not feasible. In the absence of doing that, I think what you need to do is take an approach that's more like Leafly, Leafly's approach, which is give people a way to visualize the chemistry of the strain. That way they can start associating the different products and different strains with a different visual. So you know that the blue things on Leafly are always going to be the high mercine things. The green things are always going to be high pinene. The yellow things are always going to be high limonene. And that way you give people a way to identify things visually, which is a lot easier to do than describe them verbally when you smell it. And you give them a way to start to identify things without having to go and buy and open up the product um, beforehand, right? Because you can't, you unfortunately can't go into most stores and examine the raw product. Everything's, you know, sealed in a jar behind glass. Um, you got to buy it and take it home before you have a chance to actually interact with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And um, final question here, what are you most excited about your, your research and your work moving forward? And what do you hope to, to learn? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to start to learn about a couple different things. Um, I'm really excited to see if we can figure out how we can start to tie things like user reviews to products with known formulations. And, and that's going to set us up. I mentioned that before, but it'll set us up to understand if some of those different entourages of compounds are actually having systematically different effects for people. I think they might be, and we're seeing some hints of that in the data now, but we need to denoise the data. We need to make it more precise and tie specific verified reviewers to specific verified products. And then we'll really be able to understand how those formulations might be having different effects. Um, I'm also super excited to think about things like uh, creating and informing the creation of novel formulations. So there's actually a restricted range of cannabis chemistries out in the product landscape today, as I mentioned, and there's a lot of room to make brand new combinations of cannabinoids and terpenes. And I'm really excited to see uh, what comes out of uh, the product innovation space the next few years and what people start to say about it in the reviews on Leafly. So for example, if someone makes you know, someone makes a high CBG strain with low levels of THC in a, in a particular terpene profile. How do the effects people report look for that strain? What if someone starts to breed a new strain that's high in a minor cannabinoid like THCV and or has a terpene profile we haven't seen before? What are people going to say about that? Do they have new types of effects we haven't seen before? I think they probably will. And so I'm really excited to, to dig into that data as it comes to life. Cool. Well, thank you so much. And thank you so much for sharing all of your, your knowledge and your wisdom with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast, where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.